0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org. Good morning, Providence. How are you all doing today? Good morning, good morning. Thank you. Uh, my name is Scott Mahan. I'm the director of 514. It's a pleasure to greet you all this morning. Here at Providence, we have a simple vision that is to make the gospel unignorable in our community. And to that end, each and every single week, we open up the scriptures because we believe it is the only way that we can know, worship, and worship and obey Jesus. And to that end, today we're going to be continue, continuing our series through Mark called King and Crown, where we look at the life of Jesus and compare it to how our culture tries to find identity apart from him. And today we're going to be in Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. So if you have your scriptures, you can go ahead and open up there. And if you find yourself without a Bible this morning, there should be one underneath a seat around you. And if you don't own a Bible, please consider that a gift from us to you. But again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. And when you've gotten there, if you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answers, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner uh, for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Crucify him, and Pilate shouted, "Excuse me!" And Pilate said to them, "Why, what evil has he done?" But they shouted all the more, "Crucify him!" So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed them in, pur- in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. Or excuse me, put it on him. And they began to salute him, hail king of the Jews, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning, everyone.
1: Good morning to you. I want to welcome you here to Providence. My name is Court, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, if it's your first time, thanks for making us a part of your week. We're glad you're here, and we hope you really enjoy yourself. Like Scott said, we're, we're continuing our work through the book of Mark. I'm excited about this morning because this is obviously the culmination of each of the Gospels, but we've been working through Mark all year long, so we're, we're coming to this culminating scene of Christ's life at the cross, and um, and it's, it's one of the most important uh, chapters, obviously, of the book, but also it's, it's one of the most important scenes in all of human history, namely that Jesus is going to be the substitution uh, for us, and his trial, his crucifixion, and obviously his resurrection is at the center of the gospel story. So I'm excited to get into it. We have around 20 verses, though, so let me pray for us before we jump in, uh, and then we'll, ask, we'll first ask the Lord to speak to us through his word, and then we'll jump into it. If you'll bow your heads, I'll pray. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you that you've preserved it. Thank you that you have given us such a a privilege and an opportunity to open it freely. And we ask now that two thousand years, more than two thousand years later, we ask now that this story would resonate with our hearts, maybe more deeply than it ever has. I ask that not just for the non-Christian in the room, perhaps, or the, the uncertain person. But I ask it for each of us that are your children, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to this story and the power of your word, and that it would shape us and it would, it would astound us all over again, and it would, to lead, it would lead us to more deep and meaningful worship of your name and a change of our lives in worship to you, my God. And I also ask, my God, that you would meet the needs of each and every one of us in this room, the things that we know and the things that we do not know. Through the power of your word and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would now minister to us. We trust your promise that you're here with us, Jesus, and we submit ourselves to you. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. So remember last week we just got through the, the scene of Jesus being on trial with the Sanhedrin. Jesus being on trial with the chief priests and the elders. And now it's going to move to the Roman courts. Uh, they wake up in the morning and they begin to move Jesus uh, towards Pilate in order for him to be tried uh, before the Romans. Now this is already tipping the hands of the Jewish leaders that they don't just desire that Jesus would be arrested but they want a particular sentencing. The Jews were given authority by the Romans that they could handle their own disputes within their own people, in their own religion, in their own courts, with the exception of capital punishment. They could not convict someone and sentence them to death. Only the Romans could do this. And so the Jews, the Sanhedrin, they don't just need Jesus to be guilty in their own courts. They need to bring him to Pilate. And they're hoping that Pilate We'll go ahead and sentence him. And so this, of course, the Bible tells us was to fulfill the prophecy that Jesus would would die and be hung on a tree. The, The Roman way of sentencing someone to death was crucifixion. And this was the way in which Jesus would die if Pilate finds him guilty here. So they're making this move now in chapter 15. They're bringing him to Pilate so that he might be tried. Now, there's a spiritual connotation. There's, there's an importance in the meta-narrative. That's what I want to focus on. What's the big story of the Bible? Because in this scene, this first 20 verses, and really the whole, uh, the, the whole of the crucifixion scene, the Passion Week, but particularly here, you're going to see in this scene a story of humanity. And not just a story, not just a story about what happened to Jesus, a story about what always happens in the history of the world. And so I want us to be looking for it in those terms. There's three major movements that underscore the biblical narrative here. The first one is that human beings know the truth of God, that we know that there is a God, we know that we're called to honor him and to obey him. The second movement is that human beings reject, repress, and will ultimately seek to destroy and supplant the truth of God. Okay? That's what's going to happen in this story. And then there's this turn of events that makes the gospel uniquely beautiful uniquely amazing uniquely worthy of our worship and that is that finally people are redeemed and saved by the truth of God they seek to destroy that's what's unique about Christianity that the justice actually is not poured out on the people that were seeking to suppress that truth and destroy that truth but instead they get redeemed and saved by it as they're looking to harm it, that's the that's the wildness of the story of the gospel. So we're going to get into this, and I want to start by reading the first stanza here. This is the first five verses. We're going to read one through five, and then we'll we'll get into it. Mark chapter fifteen, verse one starts like this: "And as soon as it was morning, so now we know Jesus spent the night with uh, the Sanhedrin under under guard." Okay after that night trial. Now they're going to be bringing him in the morning to a morning trial. The chief priests held consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now I want to mention this. We're not going to spend much time on it because Mark doesn't. But And in the other stories of the Gospels, Mark's going to focus just on Pilate. In the other stories of the Gospels, Jesus will go from Pilate and then to Herod and then back to Pilate. And uh, And there's a unique reason for that, which we're not going to get into because Mark's not focused there, but I just wanted to make mention of it in case you're thinking in your head, wait a minute, I thought Jesus had a couple of these. Well, he does. He goes, Pilate, then Herod, then back to Pilate, because there's a lot of political intrigue that's happening behind the scenes where people, listen to this, people are making friendships and reconciling over the death of Christ. (laughs) It says that now Herod and Pilate, who always had enmity, now they have, all of a sudden, their strife ends as they agree on killing the Savior, which is obviously... An allusion, not just to the darkness of the hour, but also to what Christ will accomplish, which is that he'll accomplish reconciliation, not just between God and man, but between man and man. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 2, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, I want, I want to point out, and I want to focus on this answer that Jesus has to the simple question, are you the king of the Jews? Because it, well, first of all, the translation makes it a little bit of an odd answer, and every gospel records that this was Jesus' answer, because he doesn't just say yes, although every commentary will tell you that the translation is basically he's answering in the affirmative. The reason is because the translation makes it difficult into English. So we have you have said so, but it's something like as thou sayest or it is as you have said. Okay, that's what he's trying to say. Now, the chief priests are accusing Jesus of many things. Now, we know the accusations based on the other gospels of the chief priests have changed from their Sanhedrin trial, which was Jesus is a blasphemer, to now they're accusing Jesus of treason in the Roman trial. Now, why would that be? Because the Romans would not care about the blasphemy of, of Jesus. They would not care. That you go handle your disputes on your own. But they do care deeply about Jesus saying there is, that he's a king and Caesar's not a king. So you notice the tactics change. It moves from, hey, we, got, we need to get support in the Sanhedrin because this man is a breaker of the Torah to this man's a breaker of Roman law. Okay, so they're accusing him of many things. And Jesus' answer is, Nothing. He says nothing. Now, we know that this is to fulfill the book of Isaiah that says that Jesus would go like a sheep silent to be slaughtered, but there is only one thing that's recorded, and that is that he looks at Pilate and says, it's as you have said. Now, I want to contend that this answer from Jesus, the reason he doesn't just say yes is specific, that Jesus is not mincing words and he's not being cavalier with his words. This is recorded multiple times in the Gospels as Jesus is responding to the accusations against him, and I think that it's specific, it's uh, providential that he answers in this way. He's not only affirming his identity, although there can be no question that Jesus is saying, yes, I am the king of the Jews. But he's also pointing out that from their own mouths, particularly Pilate's mouth and the chief priest's mouth, that they also confessed who Jesus was. It is how you have said it, meaning that they've confessed. Remember that Jesus would tell them that they would be witnesses against themselves and that they would be standing before God one day and the, the generations of Moses would be witnesses against them. They are confessing with their own mouths that Jesus is the king of the Jews and he wants them to know it. He wants them to know that out of your own lips you said that. So as you have said, so it is. The deception that these men are under is not sufficient to absolve them of their guilt. That's the idea. Their own words are witnesses against themselves. And this is reconfirmed later on when Pilate tells the guards, the soldiers, to put on the top of Jesus' cross, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. The Jews come angry at Pilate. Why would you put this on top of his cross? Why would you not put that he says he's the king of the Jews? Not that he is the king of the Jews. And Pilate's answer was, what I have written, I have written. It's a testimony of who Jesus is, both with their mouths and written down above the placard on the cross. Now, why is this significant? And why is this a story of not just what happened, but what always happens? Well, because humanity is the same way. We have many people over the course of time who will either say that they aren't sure if they believe in God or are sure that they do not believe in God, whether would be atheist or agnostic, and yet there are times in our lives, there are crux moments where our own words, our own actions betray us. Even if we've lived as though there was no God for a long period of time, there are moments, these critical moments where we act as though there were. I'll give you a few examples. This is like when you're driving down the road at 70 or 80 miles an hour, and someone pulls out in front of you, and you swerve, and people will cry out to God, say Jesus, and they don't know why. It wouldn't matter if they were Christians. They just do. During wartime, there's always the joke that there aren't atheists in foxholes because even the atheists start praying. They start considering. They start saying these things. If you're a teenager in the room, it's right before tests or before getting in trouble that you start getting your prayer life in order. You know, these kinds of things. (laughs) Um, When a relative gets sick, you might start bargaining with God. Or just, people will say, well, I'll just try it out in case it is real. (laughs) Or maybe when someone does die and our prayers may not seem to be answered, isn't it interesting that even though we don't believe in God, we'll shake our fists into the heavens because we're mad at the God whom we don't believe in. famous line uh, from a man who uh, used to debate Christopher Hitchens was that the paradox of the atheist is that his syllogism is that there is no God and I hate him. You see, human beings cannot help but confess with their lives and even with their mouths when the rubber meets the road that there is a God. And the reason for this is because Paul tells us and the scriptures tell us that we all know that there is a God. And that this is fundamental, that we think of ourselves as though if, if we were like Adam and Eve, we would have never done what they did, you know, because then God would have told us in the garden. I mean, think about it. We're in the garden. We see God. We'd never do something like that. And Paul tells us, stop believing this. You were born too, with eternity in your hearts. God has revealed himself to you every single day, just in the things that you look around and see, that you know that there is a God because you did not create yourself. Everyone who's sitting here didn't even choose your own name, someone else did that for you. There's so many things in your life that reconfirm to you that you are not God. And yet we will suppress that truth. You see, this scene underscores this reality the chief priests, the scribes, Pilate. They know who Jesus is. And yet, they're still willing to walk in this deception. And and listen to me, it's not because of intellectual reasons or doubts. That's what you and I do too, isn't it? We have new, carved out intellectual reasons about why we doubt God and all these. Those are the things that we make up after we have convinced ourselves through our passions and desires that we don't want to obey God. But we pretend as though we started with the intellectual doubts and reasons, and then we arrived at not following God. No, it never works that way. Listen, you and I are creatures of worship, desire, passion, and it starts there. And then we use reasoning and justification to make us, make our consciences feel clean This is what happens at the trial of Jesus, and you know this because just after Christ breathes his last, even one of the Roman soldiers begins beating his chest and saying, we made a mistake. He says, we've killed the son of God. He truly is. Our fears, our pleasures, our anxieties, our cravings, they all play a much larger role in shaping our behavior than our reasoning does. We just like to believe we're more intellectual than we are. No, our our reasoning becomes a method that we use to justify our cravings. And that's why we're crafty at it. (laughs) That's why we're good at it. Because our cravings are strong. Now, what does Paul say about this? This is not just me. I'm not just making this up. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 18 through 25. Paul writing to the Roman church. This is key too because I want you guys to see the Sanhedrin trial, the Roman trial. Paul, in the book of Romans, is writing to the Jews and to the Greeks. The the, the audience is important. So listen to what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? They suppress the truth. Okay. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Who does he mean by they? All of humankind. He starts by saying, we suppress the truth. Think of pushing a beach ball under the water. It always comes back up but you live your you 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 spend all your time trying to keep that thing under it will come back up truth always ends up coming back but we know the truth of God and we spend our lives suppressing that truth and he says here's the thing you can't suppress a truth that you don't know and we intuitively do know things namely that there is a god who's called us to be obedient to him called us to himself made us for himself and so he's saying it's not like there's this blank slate okay it's not like Rousseau said that we're a blank slate, that you know we don't have any knowledge and then everything gets built on top. No, there are intuitive things that you know that God places in your heart as a child, namely that there is a God who made you and that the evidence around you is there all the time. Now watch what he says next. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, there's the intellectual part. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Now watch this. Here come the passions. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. God allows us to have those things that we so desire, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. When we know God through nature and revelation, but we refuse to honor God, we're given over to the deception of our own lies and the fruit of them. That's what's happening on trial with Jesus. Now listen to me. This is the human story. I want us to to not just identify vaguely with the characters in the story. The point of the Passion Week and why everyone rejects Christ is to remind us that that's where humanity stands, that there's Christ and everyone else who did not receive him. He came to his own, his own did not receive him. Now, part of that is for the Jews, and part of that is for humanity. He came as one of us to his own children, and we rejected him. That's the idea of the gospel. Now, we we could, if we're not careful, say things like, well, how could everyone not see that what was happening to Jesus was unjust? I mean, they they put him on trial at night. They're doing all these crazy things. How could no one see it? How could they do it? And obviously, the most easy answer is to say that, of course, it was written and it would come to pass. But there is a second piece to this. And that is that what's happening in the story of Christ is meant to be a symbol for all time of what has happened since Genesis. And then the crux of the story is how it turns. And it turns in the way that you would never expect. Let's go on to verses 6 now in Mark 15 through 15. Mark 15, 6 through 15. Now at the, at the feast, he used to release for them, he being Pilate, one prisoner for whom they asked. So there's this tradition, Pilate is ruling over an area and a region where he is not comfortable (laughs) because the people are very uh, revolutionary in their spirit at this time. They want to rebel against Rome. They're sick of what's going on. And Pilate's been given this responsibility to rule over this people. So what he does is every Passover, he lets a prisoner go. One of their revolutionaries, he lets them go to assuage the crowd to say, see, I'm not that bad of a guy. Now watch this. Verse 7, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder, this is key, committed murder in the insurrection, another gospel says he was a murderer and an insurrectionist, Now listen to this, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them, meaning they're showing up saying, hey, we need our prisoner out. (laughs) Okay, here we go. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he perceived, now watch, Pilate, this is another one of those moments where you know Pilate knows, okay, he is, um, he's discerning. He perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. He knows the motives of the people who brought Jesus, and so he's trying to say, why don't we release Christ? Now watch this. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas instead. So they say, we don't want Jesus, we want the murderer. Insurrectionist, okay. You can't make this up. Let's keep going. And Pilate said to them again, "Then what shall we do with the man you call the King of the Jews?" And they don't just say, "Leave him in there." They say what? They cry out, "Crucify him!" So it just keep the and he keeps getting upped. And Pilate said, "Why? What evil has he done?" Notice that the confession out of his mouth and all of their mouths continually are, "Jesus is innocent." Um, Jesus is the king of the Jews, and also he's going to be found guilty. All of this is being spoken out loud. Let's keep going. But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Listen to this last line, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, so out of a desire to satisfy the bloodlust of the crowd, not out of justice, He released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, if you want in your Bible to underline that, scourge Jesus, it might be one of the most um, euphemistic lines in all of the Bible, the most understated. The scourging of Jesus Christ was one of the most brutal things that you could ever imagine. You can watch Passion of the Christ or other things. I wouldn't encourage you to, to watch it with your littlest ones, but it's very brutal. And they delivered Jesus over to be crucified. Now, Pilate makes this decision to release Barabbas and to crucify Christ in order to keep this riot from happening that seems to be starting to boil up. He wants to keep the peace of the people. They're crying out, crucify him. He's just trying to get the crowds to calm down. Now, the chief priest, listen to this, the people meant to lead Israel, in holiness, and to await for their Messiah, they stir up the crowds to ask for an insurrectionist instead of the Messiah. Think about that. It's just total inversion. Rather than believe and choose God, they side with the one who made an assault on Rome. This insurrection theme is important, and it's important because of what it's telling us about the meta narrative of Scripture, and I'll get to it in a moment. But the idea is that human beings like this in not just these people here but i want you guys to see this is a human condition that we too when under de- under deception will always reject christ outright this is jew and greek alike this is the theme given the choice between a criminal and christ we choose the criminal and hear me on this not just them but remember the garden that was what we chose the serpent over god do you believe god's word or the serpent we sided with a snake. you got to think, what were we doing? Well, this is, the, this is the condition of sin. Now, there's so much more beneath the surface here, though, and this is the turn in the story. Hear me. But I want you to see, the insurrectionist against the throne is the serpent who, wants to be, who thinks himself greater than God, and we side with him to have an insurrection against the throne of God. We sided with the criminal who didn't want God. Okay, that's the idea here. And so Christ is going to be the one who goes in the place of the criminal. Now, watch how this turn happens. The word Barabbas, the name Barabbas, actually means son of the father. So that's what Barabbas means. So you have this little wrinkle, this little crumb that's left there for you in the story of Barabbas, namely that he has a dual identity. He's simultaneously a criminal, murderer, insurrectionist, and also a son of the father. So he's got nobility in his veins, even though he deserves death. Now, is that tracking with anybody about humanity? That you and I, although we deserve death and we we are treasonous, there's nobility in us because we were made in the image of God. We're sons and daughters of the Father. Barabbas is this tragic character that symbolizes humanity. Now, I want you to understand, this... This is why I say it's not just a story of what happens, it's a story of what always happens. Think about almost every story you love. There is a scene of some sort. An example might be the Lion King, right? What happens in the Lion King? The father, Mufasa, has a little boy. He says, don't go over there, and he goes over there. Through going over there and doing what he ought not do, a big stampede happens. In order to save the son, what has to happen? The father's got to go in, and he's got to interpose himself for the son, He's got to go in and he's got to put himself in the place of Simba and then he's got to set Simba into safety and of course there's always this theme, this character of an evil one who betrays, Saskara, the brother who betrays to kill. Okay. You could do the prodigal son parable too where the father's awaiting for the son who's been treacherous, the son who was treacherous and took the inheritance and squandered it and the brother... Rather than going and getting his brother and bringing him back and interposing for him by sharing his inheritance with him, he is angry, but the father is willing. Listen, it's an archetype for a reason. It's because it's woven into the story of creation. The only begotten, truly obedient, holy son of the father is exchanged for the disgraced, the dishonored, criminal son who still is a son nonetheless so that that criminal son can enjoy the privileges and the merits of the Holy Son. It's it's what makes Christianity so unique because it's not just justice. Christianity doesn't say there are no right and wrongs. That's not what grace is. Christianity says our God took our place in the wrong and gave us his privilege of the right. That's what's happening here. This is the Lord's response to our failure to acknowledge him. The reason it's important to see that this is not just a story in first century Jerusalem and it's a story of what always happens is because it's for you. God's response to the belittling and the thievery and the mockery of his name is to lay down his life for us. It's not to not have wrath, it's to absorb the wrath that we deserve. The entirety of the book of Mark up until this point has been underscoring the authority, the dominion, the power of Christ as the true king of creation. And here we see God's response to the treasonous is to die to save them. That's the gospel. Now, I want to read this next portion, and I want you to really put yourself here. We just sang it in How Deep the Father's Love, but I want to read this next portion. This is the God of the universe, Okay, the second person of the Trinity wrapped in human flesh, And he is about to be on trial, human courts, the only righteous man to ever live. And watch how he endures. I want to point something out to you. Some people believe, wrongly in my opinion, that Christ merely lays down his power here. And I don't think that's all that's happening. And the reason I say this is because Christ is exhibiting a different kind of power in his restraint. Is it not a kind of power to restrain himself? from just annihilating everyone as they mock him? Is it not a a kind of true courage to look into the faces of those whom you hold together, their very molecules of their body, and allow them to mock you? That's what's happening here. I want you to think of this. Remember Satan's temptation to Jesus in the wilderness. You know you can call a legion of angels and your father will end this. He could have done that. Satan is absolutely correct in that he could have done that. He does not do that. Remember, the Roman legions are nothing compared to the legions of the armies of the host of God, and Christ leads those armies, and he's now allowing himself to be mocked by the Roman armies who who fancy themselves pretty strong, and he doesn't call upon any legions of the angels. I want to read it to you, and I want you to think about the power of Christ here, and he does this why? This is the turn of the story, so that he can forgive those selfsame people so that he can make a way that they might be redeemed. Are you hearing this? He literally looks to them as he's about to die and says, Father, forgive them, the ones that mock, the ones that scorn, the ones that spit at him, the one that put the sponge into vinegar and set it up to his lips. Those are the ones. This is what makes Christianity unique. When people convince you that Christianity's like other religions, wrong. None of them are like Christianity. None of them. And I mean that. Let's continue. Last piece here, verse 16 through 20. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. Now, the whole battalion was around 600 soldiers. They bring him in. Now, I want you to think that's a lot, okay? This is a a mob. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him Hail, King of the Jews! Striking his head with a reed, spitting on him and kneeling down, paying homage to him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put on his own clothes. And they led him out to crucify him. Now, a few things here. The clothes, they obviously are mocking him by putting the purple robe. The purple robe is the robe of royalty. They're saying, oh, here's the king. But there's some things that are happening here that they themselves do not even understand the symbolism. They take a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. What do we know in the scriptures about the thorns? The book of Genesis starts with the curse and that man was cursed, thorns and thistles. He wears the crown of our curse before these men as they push it into his head. This is, we know this is true because Paul tells us in Galatians 3 verse 13 that Christ became a curse for us. He's being crowned as the curse for us as they mock him. They start saluting him, hail, king of the Jews, hitting him in the head, with reeds pretending to pay homage to him. And they put him, they strip him of that royalty. So this is the idea is he is royal and then they strip him of it to make him what? Like a curse, like a peasant, like a slave. Now I want to take a pause here and ask a question. Do you get the sense that Jesus is winning here? It doesn't feel this way, does it? Like as you read it, even as a Christian, like we know the end and you're just like, oh, Why? You can't help but feel that way. All the fleshly signs, all the worldly signs point to major defeat. He won't speak up in his own defense. He won't use his authority to forego this suffering. His disciples have all scattered from him. The religious leaders, the Roman leaders, and even the crowds have turned against him. The verdict's been given. He's going to the cross. And yet, as Christians, we know the cross is the most glorious victory of all. Because of what is accomplished. This is the turn of the story. If the movements are, all of humanity knows the truth. The second movement is, all of humanity suppresses the truth, rejects the truth, tries to destroy the truth. The third movement is most unexpected because it's, and through the destruction of their own passions, Christ makes a way for them to be brought back in. All of humanity, through their passions against God, was the means through which God brought them back to himself. That's the love of God manifest to us. He loves us in this way, dying for us. So the, the question then is, what do we do about this? What should we do? Well, the first is simple. Worship. Worship. Is there any question as to why the Bible tells us Christ is worthy of a name that is above every name? It's because there is no other man that has ever done this, or will ever do what Christ has done. There is no equal. We also worship because we can be sure we are loved by God because of the gospel at the cross. Even if you've never had Holy Ghost goosebumps when you read the Bible in the morning, you can know God loves you. You know why? Because of the cross. Because of the cross, you can know God's disposition towards you is that he was willing to endure that for you. C.S. Lewis had a famous line to say that if you were the only one to have ever lived, the only human ever to live on the earth, Christ would have still gone to the cross for you because that is who God is, his love for those whom he has created. And you can be certain of this. Our worship, listen to me, should be commensurate to the value of Christ's sacrifice. So what does that mean? In other words, endless, total, all-consuming. We are totally His. When someone says something like "You're such a Christian zealot," you should say that that is there is no other kind <laughs> you, of your 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 love for Christ. You'll never get to a point where like you really need to balance that out. <laughs> you really whoa. You know, don't get too extreme on the love for Jesus thing. Second is it should lead us to enduring faithful obedience. This text underscores for us the confidence that you and I can have and ought to have in Jesus Christ, no matter the circumstances. The strength offered to us in the face of adversity here is unparalleled. Our king not only shows us the way, he paves the way on how to live in the face of hardship. For the Christian, the darker that the night gets, the stronger our faith should arise. The more difficult the road gets, the more hopeful the Christian should become. And the reason for this is because here at the cross, we learn that God delights in grand overtures of turns of fortune. God enjoys telling stories like this, and you and I are characters in his stories. You see, God doesn't just snatch Victory from the jaws of defeat. It's not, God doesn't do Hail Marys in the last seconds, like, oh, we thought it was going to be close. He doesn't, that's not what's happening here, okay? These aren't last second shots at the buzzer. No, God delights in meticulously and providentially guiding situations, allowing human will, frailty, brokenness to devolve almost past the darkest point, letting the powers of darkness revel and delight for a time, for a moment, and then instantly He will reveal that all of it was to bring about the ultimate victory and for his glory and the good of his people, it had to happen this way. It's the most shaming thing to the powers of darkness that they crucified the Lord of glory and made a way for you and me. They loathe it. Why does Satan loathe the gospel in this way? Because it scorns him. The fool that he is is put on display. And this is how God holds the nations in derision the book of psalms says the nations plot and rage in vain they fight each other with wars and i laugh at them (laughs) because all of them are like water in his hands he delights in these grand overtures of turns of events where the enemy thinks finally we've got him cornered i mean think of this red sea right god loves it now for you and i it's kind of depressing all right i'm gonna be honest it gets tough doesn't it our back's against the wall. Is God going to be here? you got to think if you're Moses, you've already talked with God in the burning bush. You've already, you know that he's real, and yet he still puts you in these moments where you're like, is he going to show up? Here come the armies of Pharaoh bearing down. How about Joseph? You can go through the story of Joseph. This is how God operates. He takes Joseph through the prisons, and it keeps getting worse. You think he's going to get out of slavery? No, He gets, Potiphar's wife ends up accusing him of something he didn't do, and he goes down worse further. Then he gets a dream from God. He interprets dreams. He thinks he's going to get out, but he doesn't. He ends up staying there longer. And then at the last minute, you get this very random call from the, the Pharaoh who says, call up this man who is an interpreter of dreams. He rises him to second to Pharaoh. He saves not just his family, not just as he gets saved, but... The entirety of the Egyptian empire is saved from a seven-year famine because of this man. That's the kind of stuff God likes to do. Now, you may be saying, Court, that's funny. Like, that's good. That's great stories. What does it have to do? Listen to me. This is not an ancillary doctrine. It's woven into the heart of the gospel. And it's for you, practically. God delivers most glorious victory in the most hopeless of circumstances. He likes that stuff. He wields his power through weakness. This is what he likes to do. Paul told the Corinthians, not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were some grandiose person. God likes to call those kind of people. He roars most violently through love, not hatred. He doesn't see through grandiose power, but left-handed power. You know, and a great sports example, for some of you who might need this, is uh, the rumble in the jungle with George Foreman and Muhammad Ali, if you've ever seen this. George Foreman is an absolute... Uh, just brick of a man, okay, and, and they're going to fight in Africa, and Muhammad Ali is, you know, arguably one of the most talented fighters, but he, he is, if you've ever seen George Foreman hit a, uh, a heavy bag, you know, they're not pound for, like, the striking of George Foreman would kill a man. Genuinely, he couldn't, he would have gone to jail if he ever punched someone just on the street, because it's, it's, it's use of deadly force. He could kill a man, and they're going to go fight, and Muhammad Ali decides that his his tactic in this fight for, I think, nine or ten rounds is to let George Foreman beat him mercilessly in his body. He just covers his face and lets him beat him. And everybody's thinking, what is he doing? It's You know, this is the famous rope-a-dope. He just lets George Foreman wear himself out, beating him up. And then there's this moment, and if you listen to the interviews, it's it's incredible that George Foreman says that by the time he gets to the 10th round he's so worn out he's stumbling around. he's just been swinging and hitting and swinging and hitting and he can't get this guy out and Muhammad Ali whispers in his ear and says is that all you got George (laughs) and he said George Foreman says I knew I lost right then it was over I can barely stand up and you see the turn if you watch the fight that Ali realizes he's too tired and then he proceeds to end him quickly This is akin to God's methods. He allows the powers of darkness, certain seasons in our lives. And what they do is he uses them to refine us, to grow us, to cause us to rely upon him, to cause us to call upon him. It makes us more like him, more reliant upon him. All the while, all the beating that we're taking is making us more like Jesus Christ. And then at the moment that you and I think, you know what, I'm ready to throw in the towel, The Lord steps in and says, is that all you got? And then it's the end. Then he ends it quickly. He has the turn of fortune. Then you realize, have you ever had this moment in your life that it's like 10 years after you were about ready to quit everything, you realize that it had to happen that way and God was with you all along? You know what never happens? At year five, you know that. You know what else doesn't happen? The night before it all turns around, you don't feel that way, do you? Some of you are in that now. You're in the middle of that. When I say these things, it frustrates the mess out of you. I get it. Hear me, friends. We have to know the God whom we serve. It's why Christians can laugh in the midst of difficulty and hardship. Because we know this is how he operates. And hear me. This is why you have things like Paul being in prison saying, rejoice. And the Lord always, I say, rejoice. He says, whether by life or by death, God always works this way. It will be for my deliverance. Paul knew if he was going to shed blood, it would turn around on the Romans and God would conquer them. Or if they didn't shed his blood, they were, God was going to deliver him in some miraculous way. So he's just preaching the gospel to the guards. He's just living his life because this is how God moves. So, I want to close with this. This is from the, the book of Hebrews. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. This is the application for you if you're a Christian this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And then he says, thir- verse chapter 13, verse 6, So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Like Christ, remember, he is with you. Listen, we haven't shed any blood. I pray that we don't have to, but hear me, friends. Endure. This is how God operates, is to gain glory and bring you joy through the suffering. Not around it, through it. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want to say this. I implore, I implore you to consider Christ. The self-same Christ that, ex, that exchanged his own precious life for Barabbas so that Barabbas can go free, that's the extension of that self-same offer to you this morning. Though you and I have been charged rightly for our crimes, we have also been extended the amnesty to be sons of the Father again. And so if you're not a Christian, I want to say repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is none like him. He is incomparable. Everything else is a counterfeit, and he does love you. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the story of the cross because it not only humbles us, but it exalts us. It humbles us because we deserve that kind of humiliation, but it exalts us in a way that is utterly unmerited, the grace you pour out on us. You lift us up with you and seat us with you in heavenly places. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you exchange yourself for me. Thank you that you gave me my name again, a name that only you could give as a son. I pray that for those under the sound of my voice, my friends, that you would strengthen their feeble knees, lift their drooping eyes, and encourage them that even if they be suffering, that you, my God, can and will sustain us. And that just as the victory was gained through the cross, that you will have the victory in our lives. Give us courage now, we ask God, and help us as we take of your supper to be satisfied in you, satiated in you, And help us to sing with the truth, not just of your word, but the true conscience and a sincere faith that you've given us in Jesus' name. Amen.